Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 4 through verse 8, and we believe that this is the word of God. Verse 4 of chapter 2, we read, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted up and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father God, who is in heaven, Holy is your name. You are seated in the place of glory. You are the Lord of lords. You are the King of kings. That's who you are. And who are you that you would be mindful of us? That you would care and that you would know and that you would pursue man. Yet you do. And so pursue us, God. Chase after us, and may the power of your Holy Spirit do a work in our lives this morning as we study the Scriptures. Purify us and cleanse us in your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys can be seated. Well, aloha, and how's it? Good, good morning. Good to, be, good to be with you guys. Uh, if we can get the lights boosted up, too, whenever you guys get a chance, kind of like in this middle. You guys are like sitting in the dark, huh? Um, that way you guys can see uh, the Word of God. Um, we've had some issues with the lights, so it's not the sound, the light guy's fault, but there's just some issues with the lights, and so... Uh, that being said, we're glad to be with you this morning, and uh, if, if you call this church your home, if you're here regularly, uh, we just want to say... Um, as always, we're, we're, we're blessed to be with you. Um, but if you're visiting and you're kind of just here checking things out and you're not really sure what you believe about Jesus or you don't have a church that you call home, uh, we also just want to tell you, like, we are so thankful to have you uh, here this morning as well. We open up the Bible. We teach the scriptures. We believe that, that it's not about what you think ultimately or what I think, but it's about what God has spoken and declared in his word. And so... That being said, that is why we are in the scriptures, why we open up to the book of Colossians, and we are uh, beginning to pick up the pace in the book of Colossians. We've been at a slow and steady pace making our way through this book. But it's here in Colossians that Paul has been displaying the greatness of Jesus to us. If you could sum up and and really think about what is the main theme and a phrase is that Paul is 
trying to, as best as he knows how, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to show you and me just how great, how amazing, how supreme Jesus is. Because the tendency of every human heart, the tendency of humanity is to always downplay Jesus and to make Jesus less than who he really is. Whether that's a believer or not a believer. So the Jesus as described in the Bible that Paul is revealing to us, the Jesus Paul has suffered for, and the Jesus Christians have worshipped for 2,000 years, he is so great, he is in everything. He's in everything. You, you touch, you see, you examine, Christ is there. You go to the bottom of the sea, David said in the Psalms, he is there. If you turn over every rock, if you go to the, the outer edges of the galaxy, which no technology has reached, Christ is there. He is over creation. Jesus holds all things together. He is the image of the invisible God. Everything was created for him. Everything was created by him whether it's visible or invisible. The church, every authority, every government exists to serve the purposes of Christ because Paul says he is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme. In fact, he is so supreme. Uh, A couple of weeks ago we talked about he's so involved, not just from an abstract, grand, sovereign view, but also from a personal view jesus is in your sufferings christ is in suffering and then like we looked at last week christ is in our maturity and so because of the supremacy of jesus the enemy cannot tear down or dethrone jesus can't do it He can't take Jesus down from the place of his preeminence. Jesus, because of his greatness, he has no rivals. He has no competition. Even though there is spiritual warfare against the the kingdom of darkness, against the kingdom of light, it's not like it's an even battle. The battle that is being waged, the the war that is being fought, is is a battle that is severely lopsided. And when considering this battle... The battlefield of the supremacy of Jesus is not in heaven or on earth. That's been settled. Jesus is preeminent. Christ is supreme. There is no one greater. The battle then of the supremacy of Jesus is not in heaven or on earth. The battle is in the hearts and the minds of people. Christ is supreme. But he Is he supreme in our hearts and in our minds? And so that's where the battlefield lies. And one of Satan's manipulating tactics, because he cannot dethrone Jesus, it's an impossibility, he cannot do it, he attempts to mislead and to deceive people from that which is true. If he can't dethrone Jesus because Jesus cannot be dethroned, then what he will attempt to do is he will attempt to lie to us. And and of Satan's large arsenal of spiritual weapons, deception through false teaching is one of the main ways to dethrone the supremacy of Jesus in our hearts and our minds. And it's not like this deception and this false teaching says, hey, warning, 
This is a false teaching. It doesn't do that, right? That's not how it really works. Danger. This teaching may destroy your life, ruin your marriage, and those who you love. No, it's going to appear, it's going to appear attractive. This false teaching, this deception is going to have enough truth in it to make it seem true, and then there will be a lie woven within it that you and I cannot see or maybe even be aware of because this truth, this deception that the enemy will use through people, through false teachers, is going to appear attractive. It is going to be appealing. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. It says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with Plausible arguments. See that that word that he used there, plausible? This is something that seems true. It's going to uh, look spiritual. It is going to have some virtue. It is going to make sense. It is going to be logical. It may make you feel good. Paul says, this is going to be plausible. And even though Paul is yet to visit Epaphras, who is the pastor there in Colossae, though he knows Epaphras from his time in Ephesus, and even though he is yet to visit the people in Colossae, because in verse 5 he actually says that, though I am absent from the body, I am present with you in spirit, he is compelled by the Holy Spirit, Paulus, to proclaim Jesus, to warn and to teach, and to encourage and knit their hearts together in Love, and that is why he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you. He is doing all of these things. He is knitting their hearts together in love so that they would not believe the lie, so that they would not be distracted from that which is true. And how does he love them? Like, how does Paul loving the Christians in Colossae at this time? How is he actually loving them? By making sure, verse 4, that, that no one deludes them. Paul is trying to keep the purity of the gospel and the purity of the word of God in the forefront of these people, people's minds. And that is how he is serving them. That is how he is loving them. And so on this issue of love, when it, when it comes to knitting our hearts together in love, like how do you define love this morning? How do I define love? Oftentimes, we just simply refer to love as an emotion, right? Love is something how we feel. Love is that excitement. It is the, the, the pumping of the heart, the veins that you can feel in your hands. It is the excitement that you feel, the compassion that you experience towards those you encounter and do life with. That is often love, and those things are love. But is love only that? Is love only a feeling? Love can be an emotion we experience. I'm not trying to throw that. All you romantics out there are like, what are you going to say right now, Pastor? What? No, no, love is something we experience. I'm not denying that. God made us emotional creatures. And if you experience love and if you have love, then, then, then celebrate that. You've been loved by God. That's something that, that should be exhilarating and exciting. We love him because he first loved us. But love is not just an emotion. Love is something that is actually done. I think of what Paul said in Romans. He said in this, Christ demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
How do we know that Christ loved us? Because it was demonstrated for us in the cross. Love does something. Love accomplishes something. Love does a work. It's not just an emotion. Love is an action. It is something that is done. And we are being bombarded with this cultural nonsense, even in the church, that no one should be offended, that no one should be confronted, that no one should be challenged. We just need to love, 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 accept, 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 approve, 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 just blindly be okay with everything that is going on in one another's lives. I, I am for love. Don't, don't, I'm not like, hate love. I'm not hating love. I love love. Because God is love, right? That is one of his attributes, though it's not his main attribute. And we create an idol if we take one of the attributes of God and elevate them above all of his other attributes. God is love, but love is not God, okay? So, so I, I am for love. God is love. It's one of his attributes. Uh, Paul is for love, and how does he love them? How does he care for them? How does he serve them? He confronts the lie. He confronts them with that which is true. That's how he loves them. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He is warning them. He is teaching them. He is proclaiming Christ so that no one may delude them with that which makes sense, that which is plausible. So, do you feel loved when you are confronted with the truth? When your theology is wrong, when your belief is does not align up with the scriptures, when your religious devotion to some spiritual being is not here, do you feel offended or hurt or do you feel loved? And even if you do feel offended or hurt, fine, so be it. But realize that that is an act of God loving you, correcting you, guiding you? Do you feel loved when confronted with the truth? In fact, I would just say, was it unloving for the Old Testament prophets to confront the lies of the false prophets? Was it unloving for, for Samuel to walk up to King Agag, who is a picture of sin, who believed in false gods, and to take out his sword, and I kid you not, hack him into pieces? Something Saul was supposed to do, but Instead, Samuel did it. Is that, is that loving? Was it unloving for Jesus to tell the Jewish religious leaders, hey, you're whitewashed tombs. You are a brood of vipers. The outside of your cup is polished and clean, but you are filthy inside. Is that unloving? Was it unloving for Paul to contend with the false religions during the infancy of Christianity? Uh, was it unloving for Paul to say, here, I say this in order that no one may delude you? Is that unloving? Is it unloving for Paul to tell in uh, the Galatian church that I wish those who would distract you with false gospels, with false teachings, that those who are doing that would emasculate themselves? Like, chop it off. Is that unloving? Contending for the truth of God is a sign that we love God and that we actually care for and love one another. It is unloving to enable. It is unloving to accept. It is unloving to approve that which does not align with what God's word says. 
This is why we contend for that which is true. And because we love God, one of the ways we love and we serve one another, even this morning, is by making sure no one deludes us with plausible arguments, not stupid arguments. Not like obviously that's not true arguments. Hey, with, with arguments that make sense. In fact, Paul adds to this same thought in verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, see to it. In case we didn't get it before, he's going to repeat himself. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So one of the ways we love God and we love one another is by warning, by teaching, by proclaiming him, this is not always popular, but listen, it is because we are for your flourishing. Listen, we, we are for your joy. We are for your growth. We are for your maturity in Christ. And we desire, make no mistake, to be a church that cultivates encouragement and the gospel, the positives of the gospel. That's what we, we desire. That is what we pursue. And that's why we're really thankful to have you here this morning. But I, I've personally gotten feedback. Can't we just back off a little? Why, why do we have to be so intense with the truth? I, I've heard that. I get, I get emails. I, I've, I have conversations. I bump into people. Am I in a Costco or in all these other places? Can't we just focus on being more positive? Like, like I like the church. I like that, that like it's focused on the Bible. But, but can't we just focus on all these uplifting truths. And, and what they're really saying is we want the benefits of these cheery notes of Christianity without the sobering dark notes. Give me my happy Jesus, my Jesus loves the little children, and don't give me the Jesus with whips who goes into the temple courts and flips tables, right? That's what we want. That's what many people want. And listen, there is a time and a place for encouragement, for building up, and for cultivating that type of culture. And, and, and it should be the case. But to cultivate and not defend. To cultivate the prosperity of what it looks like to walk in Jesus and to not defend that which is true is going to rob us of the true growth that we are going to have in Christ. It robs us when we only like that which is encouraging and positive and we don't want to focus on, uh, and I'm not taking a hit on a radio station, though I may subtly maybe, um, and not talk about some of the realities of the darkness of Christianity. Not of Christianity in its, that, it, that in and of itself is dark, but that there are hard truths and there are truths that are worth defending and that the enemy wants to step into that and to breed a lie there's a time and a place but to cultivate and not defend robs us and i just uh, we have this mango tree at our house and uh, a little over a year ago i took a chainsaw and uh pruned this tree quite a bit maybe too much my wife is like hey that tree looks looking pretty thin there i'm like i know whoops like trimmed it a lot and because I trimmed it so much, it almost like went into shock and, and it didn't bear fruit last year. But this year, man, the mango tree's game is strong. This thing is like, it is just flourishing. It's pumping out the mangoes, like 40 plus mangoes 
this is a fruitful tree. And so then uh, uh, the boys were like, uh, and I was with the boys, like, Dad, look, there's a rat up in the tree, and there's this rat trying to, to jack our mangoes. I'm like, no, that's not okay. And so we got rat traps. We made sure the tree was pruned. And, and we're cultivating this amazing, beautiful mango tree. And it's flourishing, and it's growing. And so on my day off, we, 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 go, we go to the beach. We go for a surf with the family. Come back, pull up. All 40 mangoes are gone. All 40 mangoes are gone. I was like, are you kidding me right now? 40 mangoes, like just, like maybe a bird took that. 40 mangoes? No. Not even on the ground. Like everything that even fell on the ground was, was gone. I'm like, man, someone came and they, they robbed us. They jacked us. If it's you, by the way, I love my mangoes back. Bring them back. I will forgive you. There is repentance in the name of Jesus. Bring my mangoes back. So while I was cultivating a healthy mango tree, I was not there to defend it when robbers came. It is not enough to cultivate. It is not enough to have church, to like Jesus, to be excited about the word of God and not be able to defend it and to stand on the truth. Look at verse 5, Paul says, He is rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He is fighting for their firmness. And sadly, many of us are being t- are, are like a boat being tossed to and fro and the wind and the seas of unsurety because we don't know what we believe or why we believe it. And we are prone, many in Christianity, to believe the lie. We are prone to deception. We cannot truly cultivate the fruits of the gospel without contending for it. Can't enjoy my mangoes unless I'm there to defend them. Dang it, right? This is therapy for me. You guys, the point is we need to cultivate the gospel and we need to contend for the gospel. And many on the scene of Christianity today, even many that I've talked with here in Kona, are like, give, give, me, give me cultivation. Give me that, but I, I don't want this contending. I don't want this fighting language. I don't want this archaic sort of false teachings. Uh, n- no, because we're not going to be able to enjoy that. If we do the fruits of the gospel. In fact, that is the flavor of all of chapter two. And this is the one of the ways we love. This is how we love, by contending. And if we are going to enjoy the fruits of the gospel, we must contend for the truth of the gospel. And more often than not, the artillery launched by the enemy rarely comes from outside of the church, it comes from wolves that are cloaked in sheep's clothing that, that, that infiltrate the church and invite them over to their house and then have a conversation and then begin, before you know it, there's some subtle weirdness about what they believe and the spirit inside of you maybe even has this ability to discern or, or maybe you don't have that and you're just na- naive and you don't know what to believe. And the sweet, seductive, seemingly innocent ideas that are cloaked in Christianity are actually destructive because those arguments plausible those things could be people you talk story with on sunday they could be in your community group friends who are not part of this church who claim to be christian who we would obviously as a a church by the way would not approve of those type of people but the difficult thing there's nothing on the outside that would necessarily indicate they are false 
Those who carry the false gospel or this false teaching don't have like 666 tattooed on their forehead. They're not walking around like, hey, you got this false teaching. Let me destroy your life. It's, it, that's not how it goes, which is why Paul says and why he warns, going back to verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it, no one takes you captive. If you believe that which is plausible, you are taken into captivity. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The blood of Jesus sets us free from the captivity of religion and performance to earn our way from God. The blood of Jesus empowers us and enables us. And so when we think about these truths, the enemy, the enemies that were within Colossae were not for people's freedom, though they were declaring this is the way to true freedom. If you, if you believe what I believe, then, then you will get there. That's why Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. These enemies within the, the church at Colossae, they were false teachers who were good at getting others to believe them. Uh, they were making them captive, and they were robbing them of the genuine fruits of flourishing in Christ and him alone. And they've been taken from the truth, which sets them free, which is why Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Why? Because the end of this verse, in verse 8, he says, because it is not according to Christ. Captivity is placing your hope and your trust in anything other than Jesus. Captivity is pursuing a means of holiness apart from the blood shed of Christ. Freedom, though, is placing your hope and your trust in Christ and him alone. Freedom is believing that it is only Jesus who is the perfect substitute for your sin and for my sin on our behalf. Freedom is believing that Jesus is enough to save us and that Jesus is enough to help you and me grow and flourish in Christ. We need him and him alone. So when Paul says here, philosophy and empty deceit, see to it that no one takes you captive by it. Just so you know, in verse 8, Paul is not against philosophy. Some Christians think like philosophy is really bad. It's, some of it is. Some of it is unhelpful. But a lot of philosophy, Paul is actually one of the great philosophers. I mean, you see him uh, in the book of Acts going to Athens and at Mars Hill. He is contending for the sake of the gospel via philosophy to the Greeks. So he's not against philosophy here but what has infiltrated the church is this false teaching called the philosophy that's what it was called uh, the urban street language at that time would have been the love of wisdom uh, which on the surface sounds nice right like who in the church wouldn't agree with the love of wisdom plausible seductive the Bible invites us to love wisdom, but some in Colossae were naive and they fell prey to this false teaching. The people of the philosophy, they believed that they had superior knowledge of God and that they only had the key to unlock the deep secrets of the mysteries of God. And then if you follow their rhythm, if you follow their pattern, if you use their scriptural key, they even use Bible verses, some of these people, and they cloak the truth 
uh, they cloak the lie with the truth, and they, they have this secret way of navigation and this way to unpack that which is true as though somehow you couldn't discover this truth on your own. And they thought these people of the philosophy, for the love of wisdom, they thought everyone else's view in the church was elementary. That's what they were dealing with then. Today we, we deal with this. Obviously, more, more obvious would be religions like Islam, Hinduism, um, Eastern mysticism. Those things are, are plainly not of Christ, and those things lead us into captivity. Even elements of those things that we add to our Christianity would lead us into captivity. Uh, but also a little bit more subtly, like Jehovah Witness and, and Mormons, especially because some of those people who come knocking at your door claim to be Christians. This is why Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And then even more elusive underneath that is the prosperity gospel or the Freemasonry. Just going to drop that out there just for everyone in the cults to, to be clear that is false. That way leads to hell. And it is taking thousands and millions of people with them. That's why Paul says, verse 4, let no one delude you. Let no one delude you. Because a watered-down gospel is no gospel at all. There is no one greater than Jesus. There is no other salvation than Christ and him crucified. To add anything to the purity of Christ is only to dilute it, only to weaken it, only to take away from the power of that which saves. And our faith is diluted when we add some religious performance or when we slap on some good morals to the gospel. And they're going to be plausible. Read this spiritual secret, do this practice, say this incantation, blend in other religions with Jesus, receive extra biblical mystery or knowledge, or do things by your own strength. Those things lead to captivity, and it is slavery of sin, and they have no substance because Paul says it is empty in verse 8. It's empty deceit. It is no longer inspired by God. Its origins are in humanism and man-made religion, the tradition and the elemental spirits which, of which Paul says. And it's elemental. That's why when people come up, even to me, and they talk with me or Lee or other people, like, hey, I got this thing, and I've been to soon. Don't play with crayons, man. When God has invited you to the beauty of his display of his, this glorious art, you get distracted from the main things. It's not from God because it is not according to Christ. So how can you discern? You can discern if something is truly from God if it is about Christ. And not just abstractly about Christ, the Christ that is proclaimed here by Paul, the Christ of the scriptures, the Christ revealed in the Bible. So how does the supremacy of Christ bring about our own maturity and flourishing by cultivating and contending the gospel in our own life. Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just go on the defense. He goes on offense. He doesn't just call us to contend. He calls us to cultivate in these verses as well. He says, therefore, just as you received, verse 6, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
You, you receive Jesus if you're a Christian. He was given to you as the result of the generosity of God the Father. God gave Jesus for our own salvation. We didn't ask for it. We didn't earn it. It was freely given. We receive it. And what happens in us receiving it is we believe in what Christ accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's this fancy word called double imputation, but, but all it means is that on the cross, Christ takes our sin, and in exchange, Jesus gives us his righteousness. God takes our sin. Jesus gives us his righteousness. And that is what we see, receive from God through Jesus. And we receive Receiving Christ, then, isn't the end. It's just the beginning. All right, I received Jesus. I'm going to heaven. Bro, you're just getting started right now. Like, welcome to the team. Let's go. Is this awesome? I'm glad you're excited. You're not at the end. We're just beginning, brother and sister. We're going. Let's keep moving. Since we have received Jesus Christ's work on our behalf, Paul says in verse 6, so walk in him. Great, you got Jesus. You received Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Now walk in Jesus. And walking in Jesus is not just believing in him. It is believing him. See, see the difference there? It's not just believing in the idea of Jesus. It is believing Jesus. Walking in him is not just trusting in Jesus, but it is trusting Jesus. Walking in him is not just liking the idea of Jesus, but following the person of Jesus. Being relational with the God who made you. Knowing him. Which is why he says, so walk in him, verse 7, rooted and built up and established in the faith. See, our belief in Jesus means we have a relationship with him. Because we received, we follow. Because we believe, we love. We hear his word and we desire to do his word in his people because we have been, we have been just been reconciled to, to, to God. We have been reconciled to one another to, to serve him, to love him. God didn't just save us so we would attend church every once in a while cuss a little bit less and be a little bit better version of ourselves. The way we foster a vibrant relationship with Christ is by walking in Him, by being rooted in Him, by being built up in Him. That is how we are established in the faith. The way we flourish in Jesus, the way we cultivate the gospel is by loving Jesus, by trusting Jesus, by praying to Jesus, by regularly having rhythms of being in the word of God, and by obeying Jesus. And this is a surefire way to see the supremacy of Christ in your life daily. Salvation costs you nothing. You received him. But following Jesus will cost you everything walk in him. Abide in him. And he in you. And you will bear much fruit. 
For apart from him, you can do nothing. I, I, I can't do anything. We, can't do, we cannot grow. We cannot flourish apart from Jesus. This is why we must be rooted. Not, I don't have time. I'm, I'm running out of time. But just, just for your own sake, today after church, go pick up and read John 15. Sit in it. Memorize it. Think about it. Apply it. All right, so verse 7 says, being established in the faith, just as you were taught, were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Interesting way to end that, huh? Abounding in thanksgiving, that no matter how much you've suffered, no matter what you've gone through, no matter how unclear you are about life, no matter how difficult things may have been, no matter how many unanswered questions you have from God, if you have Jesus, you have all the reasons to be abounding with thanksgiving. Because Jesus was tortured. He was nailed. He was murdered in our place for our sins. Jesus conquers sin and death. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. Christian, wherever you are at this morning, you have a thousand reasons to be thankful for Christ. A thousand times a thousand. If you find it hard to praise, if you lack the desire to walk in him, because we've lost our heart of thanksgiving and gratitude towards him. We have a thousand reasons to be thankful. And if you don't believe in Jesus, do you see what Christ has done for you? Do you see what Christ has accomplished for you? Receive him. Believe on his name. Confess your sin. And may he be supreme in your life. Whenever we think about all of Christ and that he's done for us, I cannot help but think of what David in Psalm 118 verse 1 says. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Because of his steadfast love towards you and for me, we praise him, we thank him, and we walk in him. Oh, that we would be a people who contend for the fruit of the gospel or, or, and contend for the truth of the gospel. Contend and cultivate these things in your life by his spirit, by his strength. Let us pray. Jesus, you are the true vine. Father God, you are the vine dresser. Every branch in you that does not bear fruit, you take away. You throw into the fire. Every branch that does bear fruit, you prune that we may bear more fruit. Already, we are made clean because of the word that you've spoken to us. So may we abide in you and may you abide in us. For apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord. 
So the invitation, Lord, is made. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. Christian, have you received Jesus, but you've bought into the lie that that is enough? You need him every day to be rooted, to be established so that your faith would be firm. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Do not let anyone, including yourself, be deluded or be seduced by arguments that make sense. That there is another way to grow. There's another way to be strengthened. There's another way to be saved. Non-believer, have you received Jesus Is he your Lord? Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. He is king. He is supreme. He is preeminent. But is he in your life? If he is not, confess. Lay down your arms. Raise the white flag and surrender your life to him and be saved by his grace and receive all that he has done for you on your behalf in and through the work of the cross. And you will be saved. Father, we thank you that you are God of salvation. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.